Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. LMFM Podcasts with CNC Carpets. We bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 087 237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Friday morning, the 29th of July. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Yesterday, the government agreed the targets uh, for the reduction in carbon emissions across each sector of society. This is Eamon Ryan. We do it to protect our future generations. We do it to protect our children and their children, who, if we don't address climate change, will be left in a world that is not stable, is not secure, is not fit for living in. And we have to be ambitious. We have to be bold. We have to take the action now. We cannot delay. That's the Minister for the Environment, Eamon Ryan, speaking yesterday. Now, that uh, was obviously the Minister outlining why we need to act before Eamon Ryan went on to bottle it on agriculture. We'll talk about that with Sinn Féin's spokesperson on climate in a moment. But first, let's hear something about a review that the HSE is carrying out into our ladies' hospital in Navan. We had been hearing uh, talk about this uh, last week on the programme when we asked the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, what he had done about the risk of people dying in Navan since he paused the closure of uh, the emergency department on the 21st of June, despite the warnings about the risk to patient outcomes. The Minister... Uh, had asked the HSE to carry out a review. This is what a spokesperson for the minister told us. The HSE said that review would commence this week. The HSE has since refused to make anyone available to LMFM to explain what is happening about this review. In fact, the HSE is refusing to give any information whatsoever to LMFM about this review. Then, yesterday, Minister Helen McEntee told us she had seen the terms of reference for the review. Yes, yes. Mm. Uh, and they and they are essentially, as I've said out, mm. it is looking at um, access to accident and emergency within the county and surrounding areas, taking into account Navan, Drogheda and Connolly. It's looking at capacity within our ambulance service and looking at other 
support. So obviously looking at our GP services as well, not just during the day, but out of hours. We asked Minister McEntee if the terms of reference could be published. I have no doubt that it, that it can be published and mm. I think it should be to show exactly what it is that we have what capacity is needed and where we go from here. So we asked the HSE if uh, they could make the terms of reference available to us. The HSE said... I I don't have... Yeah, the silence was deafening from the HSE. So the HSE won't tell us how it is reviewing the decision to close the, H, the, the emergency department. But what about the people carrying out this review? Who Who is heading up the team? How was this team selected? I, I don't have that information. Helen McEntee didn't know. So we asked the HSE who is heading up the team reviewing if the emergency department in Navin should close or not. And how was that team selected? The HSE said... Again, a deafening silence. We suggested to the HSE that we report to you this morning that the HSE is not and will not be making the terms of reference public, nor will the HSE reveal to the public who is involved in conducting this review. And the HSE said... Again, a deafening silence. Now let's uh, go to Darren O'Rourke, uh, who is a, a local Sinn Féin TD as well as uh, his party spokesperson on climate action. A very good morning to you, Darren O'Rourke. And this takes us back uh, to the conversation we had a couple of days ago. We got a, a little bit of information from the Minister yesterday, uh, but uh, there's a cloud of silence coming from the Health Authority. Public officials don't want to tell us anything about this. In fact, they've said that they won't say anything about it until the review concludes, which will be in quite possibly eight weeks' time. Yeah, Michael, and and I have to say, I I think it is uh, completely scandalous. It's disgraceful and uh, uh, it completely undermines the process, uh, the the, the lack of transparency. and I think for, for anybody who might be uh, sceptical, for whatever reason, um, it, it uh, would just confirm that position, you know, and reaffirm it for, for people. I've also written to Paul Reid, the head of the, the HSE, I've written to Stephen Donnelly, um, coincidentally asking for exactly the same information as uh, you have sought there, um, uh, and in addition, uh, uh, asking, uh, as I had before, um, that's, uh, the, the question of the investment and enhancement of services. That mm. needs to be on the table. It needs to be one of the considerations. It needs, you know, the terms of reference, uh, as you know yourself, would dictate whether that's an option that, that is on the table to be considered. And, and in my opinion, you can bin this review if, it, if it's not. Um, and I think there are, w- w- even before that, there are serious questions. I think it's, you know, it's, it's yeah. Do you know? Do, do you know the way the minister uh, placed a, a gagging order on the HSE in June? Uh, do you think the minister might have placed a, a gagging order on the HSE in July? Well, uh, um, I don't know. Um, it, it certainly shouldn't be the case. I, I think, Michael, we've been. It's on weird, before. though, isn't, I, it? isn't it? Really weird that the HSE won't outline how they're carrying out a review of a local emergency department or who is doing it, uh, or, or what the objective is, or, or uh, uh, how they're um, going to go about it. Uh, is there uh, an end result that they have to achieve? Uh, we have no information as such. Other 
further than what Helen McEntee was able to tell us yesterday. No, no, it's completely, it's completely outrageous. And, and I would ask the question, how does Helen McEntee... Um, I'm elected the same way as, as Helen McEntee is in, 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 in the... But she says she saw the terms of reference. I, I didn't. You know, why would Helen McEntee be afforded that and, and not me or, or others or, or yourselves? You know, um, if, if, if she has seen them... Maybe she could publish them or, or, or make them available. I, I think you know there's a pattern there in terms of who's included in these conversations and who, who's excluded. And I think you know my mandate and Johnny Gurks and Pat Tobin's and mm. fairness is every bit as much as the government TDs we have mm. in, in in Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil in County Mead. Um, I think the people of Mead have a right to see, and, and, and Loud and, and North Dublin and West Dublin, if we're talking about Connolly, in fairness, these are our health services, a review who of our do the, Who do the people of Mead think they are? Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's it, Michael. And I think well, well, what has this got to do with the people of Mead? It obviously has everything to do with the people of Mead, and you know, in fairness to yourselves, Michael, you have done running in relation to this and drawn drawn attention to it. But I think it's you know, for 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 people to have confidence, for people to have confidence in this review that is 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 ongoing. Surely they need to see the details of it. Who's conducting it? How they were appointed? You know, like because think of all the the possible scenarios. This, the, like, w- we could draw a conclusion here that these are hand-picked people uh, selected to deliver a, a, a foregone conclusion. Now, there's nothing well, to well, say. Well, they're, 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 they're hand-picked, you'd imagine. Uh, but you'd also imagine, uh, from what we've been hearing, they've been uh, selected uh, to prove their, th- that their own opinion is wrong. We're talking about, most likely, you'd imagine, the people who say that it's unsafe to keep the emergency department in Navin open. Uh, And you'd imagine that the minister is hoping that they'll come back and say, well, that was wrong. We shouldn't have suggested that. Well, we don't. Well, see, we don't know, Michael. You know, we don't know. Uh, we don't know what, what the. Uh, I don't know what the terms of reference is. You don't. The people of me don't. Helen McIntyre does. I presume the HSE do. I presume Minister Don, Donnelly knows what the what the terms of reference is. Like, was it Minister Donnelly that set the terms of references? Was was it the HSE that set the terms of reference? We we don't know. Um, really, you know, to be fair. Well, complete, Minister McIntyre told us yesterday that the HSE and the Department of Health were working last week on agreeing the terms of reference uh, and that's all we know uh, the minister says she's seen the terms of reference they look at hospitals in Navan and Drogheda and in Connolly they look at the ambulance service and they look at all of the things that have been of concern to people including uh, getting to a GP we're going to be referred to the MAU and all that sort of stuff uh, but you'd imagine that the people because it's a HSE review you'd imagine that the people uh, who are on the team are HSE clinicians You'd, you'd have to assume that. And all you could do is make assumptions because the HSE won't tell you. Exactly. Uh, it's, it's like the third secret of Fatima. So you have to make assumptions about this. So if the HSE clinicians are, are looking at this situation, if they come back and say, yeah, it wouldn't have been right to close it, well, then they'd have to say our professional medical opinion in the first instance was wrong. Yeah, um, well, 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 they they would, but at the same time, they they mightn't. That mightn't be the case, Michael. If the the minister said, 
you know, you've got a limitless budget here or the upper end of the budget we had for you before has been increased because we want to make additional monies available. What would it cost to do, to deliver safety in a different way than you had intended before? So, so that's, that's something that, that would be a reasonable approach given everything we've been talking about for the last number of months. Well, I I understand what you mean, but I I mean, as things stand, uh, the medical expertise is saying that it's not safe for a small amount of patients and some might even die. And now if they come back and contradict themselves, uh, the HSE will have no credibility. And it appears to me that that's the position that they've been put into. And it appears to me that's why they're refusing to talk about it, because this is not something that they invited, nor do they want. It appears to me that the minister is gone underground because he doesn't want to take these questions from local people through their local media. Yeah, well, 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 I agree with you 100% in relation to that, uh, Michael, and, and specifically on the point of the terms of reference of the review, you, your position echoes my own. If this review is not looking at a completely alternative approach to addressing the safety concerns at Navin Hospital, i.e. if it's not looking at the prospect of investing in and enhancing the services at Navin Hospital, well, then it's a complete and utter waste of time and money. Mm. And it's just, you know, it, it could draw no other conclusion than the, 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 the conclusion that they drew before this that has led them to the proposal that they, yeah. that they already have. There's so it would be a complete waste of time. There's another issue here, uh, a very, very serious question, I think, for Minister Stephen Donnelly. The Minister for Health was told in November, as I understand it, that the emergency department in Navan is no longer safe and must close. He was told that by his chief clinical officer. He was told that by uh, the clinical lead in the hospital itself. He was told that by the CEO of the HSE. He was told that by all of the senior members uh, in the HSE who advise him. And now we're hearing that a review is going to take place which won't conclude until September. So that means that the minister has been told that there's a situation that puts human life at risk and the minister is not going to do anything about that whatsoever for, what is it, 10 months? Yeah, yeah. Well, For 10, to, to, yeah. to, to preside over a, a life-threatening situation as he's advised for 10 months, how can any minister do that? Well, well, I, I don't, and, and and I'm not even entirely sure. And that's something I, I, I think, in fairness, Michael, it is worth um, get, get, getting further detail on because I'm not entirely sure. Like, was there a, a situation that happened in November that precipitated that? That meant that that risk factor was different than it was in the previous months and even previous years. I, I, I don't know um, at, at what point. Of course, we do know that the minister has been notified of it now, and he does need to to respond with a plan. You know, Michael, and I've said it before, that that my position and Sinn Féin's position is that the HSE's proposed solution will actually make matters worse. So it's not a solution that, that, that I think is, is, is clinically credible. And I think there are clinicians who, who support my position in relation to that, but we do need a solution, mm. and we need a and we need a rapid solution, and 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 in order to provide a safe service for the people of County Mead. And, well, and we don't need this nonsense. We don't need people uh, looking for information and not getting information. We don't need uh, reasonable questions going unanswered. 
Oh, no. Well, this is the absolute definition of um, the wrong approach to, to, to this. You know, as, as I said at the outset, if for no other reason than um, you want to give people confidence in the process, you would put it all on the table. Do you know, um, because otherwise, regardless, uh, um, if people, wanted to, if people mm-hmm. wanted to make mischief out of this, at the, at, at the other end of it, they could say, well, sure, it wasn't a transparent process. Sure, you know, you can question every, every element of it. Um, so so I, I just think it's... It, like the minister, in my opinion, and people can have their own. He hasn't shown leadership on this stuff. He's been, you know, he has been incredibly weak um, in in relation to Navan Hospital and in other areas. Um, but there is there, there is a, a collective government responsibility. Um, we need to, we need to see leadership from from our local government mm. TDs or Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael TDs yeah. and representatives and, and County Mead as well because well, we, they we, cannot we, stand over this. Well, we need we, we need to know. Uh, well, they probably have no choice in uh, what the minister is ultimately deciding. They can speak to him, but we need to know: Has the minister decided to allow a situation which is posing a risk to human life to continue without any intervention? For ten months or not? That's an entirely legitimate question that that uh, that I feel the minister needs to answer. And you know, Michael, my position in terms of what the solution here is: investment and enhancement of services at Navan Hospital, and that needs to be firmly on the table as a as a solution here. Or else, we're, it's a complete waste of time. And well, it's it, dangerous. It, it's, a dangerous it, waste it, of time. It's either or, isn't it? Uh, I mean, you either close it or you do something to make it safe. Well, it, it, that, that, those are the options. Those are the options yeah. there. And and um, and, and uh, to, to, to restate it again, if you close it, I believe you make matters worse and not better, and you shift the risk elsewhere. And yeah. we have this conversation. In but you do, but you do one or the other. Uh, you know, without without debating the merits of whether it should stay open, you you do one or or the other. You either close it. Or, or you make it safe. You don't sit back and say, oh, I need to know more about this for 10 months when you're being told that somebody could die. I, I agree entirely. And I think I said before to you, Michael, that there has been a policy of drift, a yeah. policy of drift at Navan, at Navan Hospital. Yeah. And it needs to stop. And, when the, min- and the minister drifted off since the 21st of June, it would appear, because there hasn't been a sound out of him until we went banging on the door. And I don't mean knocking on the door. I mean banging on the door looking for information. And then we were told that there was a review. We asked, what is that review? We were told, don't ask us, ask the HSE. So we had to go around the houses to ask the HSE, who came back and told us nothing, essentially. And we're in this situation now where they're saying uh, effectively, uh, or, or they're uh, not contradicting us when we say that they won't publish the terms of reference, nor will they make it public who's involved in carrying out the review. Uh, so you have this bizarre situation going on. Uh, the Minister drifted off since the 21st of June, hasn't said a, a word about it since. Uh, and uh, I, 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 I just, I, I fail to understand. I mean, when, when hospitals were seeing their emergency departments close across the country, I think government ministers were out ta- talking about it all the time. I certainly know from our own local perspective in, in the Louth County Hospital that Mary Harney was the minister uh, at the time. There's listeners who are probably too young to remember Mary Harney, but she was the minister for health at the time and she was on this radio station quite a number of times explaining the merits of, of or the rationale for doing it and so on. This is just bizarre. No, it absolutely, absolutely is, Michael. So, the, so, so we need to hear from the minister. We need to hear from the HSE. And th- 
through our representatives, you know, our representatives of government in County Mead, we can go directly to the minister, as I have, and directly to the HSC, but we also need our, our government uh, TDs, and they happen to be ministers, um, to, to do exactly the same. You know, they're, they're, they're well, the ones that are accountable yeah, to us in well, County Mead. Well, <laughs> Helen McEntee, the Minister for Justice, told us yesterday she'd ask for the terms of reference to be published. I suppose time will tell whether that will happen. Uh, you're here really to talk to us uh, about climate change uh, as well as Navin uh, and uh, we'd uh, the announcements across all sectors yesterday. What did you make of what government has decided? Look, I, I, um, j- just to say, Michael, it, it is a, a hugely challenging area. I, I think it, it, it landed where many people expected it would land with a, a political compromise somewhere in between 22 and, and, and uh That's and in agriculture. Um, yeah, for, uh, for, for, for agriculture. Yeah. And I think... But you look know, at the upshot of that. Electricity has gone from uh, a potential 62% up to 75%. It has, and, and, and I think there's, there's a clear trajectory in relation to, to electricity and fairness. There isn't a clear tra- trajectory in relation to agriculture. And we heard from the Climate Change Advisory Council that, you know, there's a number of issues that they would say, first of all, that, that you know, the 51% isn't contained within the, the combined targets, um, that there isn't a clear roadmap or, or timelines, and that's mm. where, where we need to get to, because we actually have been here before, Michael, at the carbon budget time, where some people said they, go, they went too far. Others said they didn't go far enough. Mm. Targets were set and targets were missed. What we need to do is to get serious in terms of the type of actions okay. that are needed to reduce emissions and to start implementing them rapidly. Well, what, what, what does that mean? Because uh, you've not seen yeah. the details and you've explained. Uh, yeah, people, yeah, find, also, people, so, people find it difficult to understand your explanation. Uh, it has to be said uh, that uh, you won't be setting targets uh, like the government did because you didn't have the same information as them. But what we do know is is that the law states that there has to be a 51% reduction by 2030. In government, would Sinn Féin achieve that 51%? Because as it stands, the government is only going to get to 47%. Well, I, I'm going to be frank, Michael. I firmly believe, and despite the, part, the fact that the Green Party are in this government, I firmly believe that Sinn Féin would do a better job of achieving emissions reductions than, than this current government because we would do it in a fair way. We would, we would prioritise the areas that need address. We would uh, build schemes that were fair and not inequitable. So people, are, people are saying, listen to you now, he would say that though, wouldn't he? Yeah. Uh, but would he say that he would achieve the 51% by 2030? Well, we would, I, I think we would do a better job than the, than the government of, uh, than the current government at doing it. And, and I think the things, and, and interestingly enough, we'll so that, Sinn Féin we'll put out a number we'll, in our we'll response. Take that, yes, we'll take that to being probably not. No, well, it's 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 going to be. So it's 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 either no, it's either no, no, or no it, it isn't. But it's it's a recognition, Michael. It's a recognition that this is the most ambitious. Um, target of, of any country in the world. That's um, why so that's why people think you sat on the fence with agriculture. No, 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 it isn't that at all. In, f- in fairness, the reason why we didn't commit in terms of figures because we didn't say we have enough information. Now it's quite clear from what the government have produced that there are huge black holes, literally, as they call it, the Danish black box, mm. um, the gap there that they cannot find an answer to. So if, if the government with the, the resources of the department and elsewhere can't find, a, can't find an answer to it, I don't, I, I don't see how they expect, expect us to. But what's really important... OK, so you wouldn't do any better than them? Well, what we, what we would do in the first instance is build schemes 
that actually are effective in reduce. So, so for example, and, and just to, just to say, Michael, that in response to the the sectoral emission ceilings announcement yesterday, Sinn Fein uh, re- released a statement in, in in my name that included a number of measures that we said the government should do immediately. This morning, the Climate Change Advisory Council uh, issued a statement that in my opinion, echoed a number of those measures. So, for example, the prioritisation of people in need in the retrofitting scheme. The the government scheme is built on ability to pay, not on targeting the coldest homes or the poorest homes. In the area of uh, renewable energy, resource the planning system to ensure that the opportunity of renewable energy, in particular offshore wind, is realised. That's what Sinn Féin would do. That's not what the government are doing. They're having rows, they're, they're building schemes that are deeply inequitable, deeply divisive, and they're, they're isolating and targeting, in my opinion, and there's lots of finger-pointing and you blaming say they achieved of, of the rural communities, and you, that's not going to you deliver You could say they achieved the impossible because uh, they reached uh, agreement and uh, they published the targets. That's, but you see, that's, that's not the objective. The objective is to reduce emissions. The targets are completely mm-hmm. irrelevant if you do not reduce emissions. And time after time, this government and previous governments have set targets. Every time they set targets, they miss them. Every time. And that's, that's not the, the, the answer here. What we need to do is the exact opposite and reduce emissions. Uh, um, and, and we will only do that by engaging with communities, mm-hmm. by providing uh, progressive opportunities for people to engage in climate action and people want to do it but they're not being supported or empowered. You know you just reminded me there of uh, Martin Turner's uh, sketch in the Irish Times uh, this morning uh, and uh, uh, drawing of a a man and a woman, the woman saying to the man, now they've finalised the emission targets we can all get on with failing to meet them. They're looking at a a pie chart uh, but it says it's a pie in the sky chart. We leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, that's uh, Sinn Fein's uh, spokesperson on climate action, Darren O'Rourke, who's a, a TD for Me East. Michael Reed on LMFM. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Some of uh, the comments coming to us uh, this morning. Sean is in Navin. He says he just can't understand uh, the lack of information in relation to this review into the emergency department in Navin. It would really make you wonder what is going on. Surely this information should be in the public domain. Yeah, I think that's probably the truth. Thanks, uh, Sean. Uh, do you want to hear the response from the HSE again? OK, let's hear what the HSE has to say about it. Do you want to hear what the Minister has to say about it? This is Stephen Donnelly's response. Sorry, that's the best we can do for you. Um, uh, maybe that'll change in time. I don't know. Um, but uh, there is no information being made available to LMFM. No documentation uh, from the HSE in relation to the terms of reference or indeed who is carrying out the review. They won't even say who's on the team or where they were selected or how they were selected or why they were selected, let alone what they're doing. Uh, it really is... When you think about 7,000 people taking to the streets about this, you really think this is an issue of public interest and that a publicly funded health authority staffed by public servants 
would give you that information. But uh, that's not the case. Uh, somebody says uh, the HSE won't come back and say, oops, we got it wrong when it comes to the emergency department in Navan. If it closes, we'll end up like the NHS in England with hospital trusts and ambulance services and waiting times. Uh, uh, waiting then for an ambulance as well as uh, when you get to the hospital over there all of this has gone up massively our caller says this is Margaret who's texting and she says the waiting time for an ambulance is from 48 minutes up to 5 hours people have died while they've been waiting for an ambulance the HSE needs to take a a good look across the water before they close Navin's A&D thank you Margaret Deirdre and Kells in touch saying it's a, a disaster the HSE won't come out and say what they're doing with the hospital and the people of County Mead needs the hospital that saved my life. Uh, we'd pat in Balbriggan in touch with us saying with regards to all of this climate change that's going on, does it really matter what a little country does? A little country like Ireland, when the likes of India, China, Brazil are doing what they like, even European countries are reopening coal mines again, says Pat in his message. Eric Cuthbert in Dundalk says Ireland should set an example for the world and stop killing cows, pigs and chickens and close down all of the slaughterhouses. Well, thanks indeed uh, for sharing that with us, Eric. Uh, That might be part of the future and I I mean part of the future that you'll be eating meat alternatives uh, because some people uh, will never stop eating meat as I'm sure you'll accept, Eric. But thank you indeed for your message to the programme today. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. will be required to reduce its emissions by 25% by 2030 compared to the 2018 base year levels. The programme for Government and the Climate Act both recognise the special economic and social role of agriculture and today's Government decision establishes ambitious targets for emissions reductions right across the board but recognises the importance of sustainable food production too and I believe that this target reflects a very challenging but ultimately achievable ambition for the sector. Right, that's the Minister for Agriculture, Charlie McConnellogue, speaking at uh, the government uh, press briefing last night. Let's speak now to Pat O'Toole, the political correspondent for the Irish Farmers Journal. Good morning to you, Pat, uh, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. What's your assessment of this? Is the Minister right saying that this 25% target for agriculture is achievable? Well, it is achievable, but the question is, I suppose, how um, farming, you know, if we stopped farming, we could completely obliterate its carbon footprint, but we'd have no food production. Um, the uh, the government have some uh, analysis done of the potential impact of various levels of cuts in carbon, you know, by 2030, uh, but we haven't seen it. What we have seen is the KPMG report, which the Farmers' Journal commissioned, and it uh, assessed that uh, once you go into the mid-20s, you're starting to impose deep cuts in the, in, in the numbers of animals that dairy and beef farmers and sucker farmers can keep. Um, and that will have a fairly deep impact on their income. The question is, uh, you know, exactly how that's going to play out over the next few years because that's just data analysis ultimately. Um, But if you look at that data... uh, It's grim. It's grim. Uh, And you can put some figures on the cost. Uh, Yeah, on on the cost on one side. And a lot of people, um, um, you know, said that the, uh, the KPMG report 
didn't hold that much water because it only looked at the downside, didn't look at the upside. The government are pushing hard the fact that there are opportunities at the moment for farmers, and there are. Uh, but if we go through the opportunities that are there, uh, the picture starts to get murkier because if we look at solar, it's a huge opportunity. And both our transport and our energy sectors require farmers to get into solar. But there are over 500 uh, solar farm applications of farmers sitting in planning uh, offices for years now, gathering dust. The system hasn't moved with the urgency that's required at all. Mm. Uh, the um, uh, and, and the reality is that if you plug an electric car into the grid at the moment, <clears throat> it's largely being... Um, charged, uh, the electricity that's been generated to charge our car is largely coming from fossil fuels. Uh, the uh, Most of the renewable fuels, whether it's solar or wind, are coming off farmland with the involvement of farmers in wind farm and solar farm projects. So like, <clears throat> there's going to be more of that. But the, you know, the underlying truth there is that you might as well plug your electric car into a diesel generator if it weren't for farmers buy-in to renewable energy. And anaerobic digestion has been talked about for decades mm. now, but it's never really taken off because what's called the refit tariff, that's how much the uh, the producer of the renewable energy is paid for the production of that energy. Uh, the refit tariff is poor. A lot of people in farming would say that the ESB have... Uh, a grip on energy production in this country, which has uh, been counterproductive. And anaerobic uh, energy is really making electricity out of slurry or dung or whatever. And instead of the methane going into the atmosphere, it goes into making uh, electricity. Uh, Absolutely. It. And then instead, you also got instead, instead of using yeah. gas or oil, yeah. Yeah, you get the creation of mm. biogas. Mm. A lot of farmers got involved in a project after the loss of the sugar beet sector in the mid-noughties. Uh, 06 was the last year we grew sugar beet. And from there on, farmers grew oilseed rape for uh, biofuel. Mm. <clears throat> and um, there was a change in the uh, way that was supported. Um, it's complicated, but basically there was a there was a, a vat, a vet, basically a vat relief it was called the mineral oil tariff relief, and that was removed by Minister Eamon Ryan, believe it or not, and replaced with uh, these carbon certificates, which could be traded. But they proved worthless because companies who are bringing in um, palm oil and other vegetable oils, some of them produced in parts of the world where, uh, you know, where uh, native forests are being pulled down to grow these oil products. Mm. Um, they, they swamped the market with the carbon certificates and uh, that sector collapsed. So farmers have been burned and they have been waiting for better planning. Forestry planning has been in chaos for years, um, largely due to serial objectors playing the system. And um, farmers are having difficulty getting planting licences, but much more difficulty getting felling licences to, uh, to harvest their trees, uh, which is a necessary part because, mm-hmm. of course, Apart from being a carbon sink, forestry is also uh, a source of renewable material for both uh, fuel mm-hmm. and for buildings. So okay. we have, you know, we have this circular yeah. argument. We keep coming back to the thing that ultimately farmers make their living from food production, and um, all these other alternatives. 
largely have turned out to be dry wells. The mm. future may be different, but that's the past experience of farmers. So they are cautious, they are sceptical mm-hmm. about these other opportunities. And, and you're giving them plenty of reason to be both, because well, the KPMG analysis suggests that a 25% cut would result in a, a loss of between 1.1 and 3.9 billion for the sector. A potential reduction in the beef cattle herd of around 13% and 11% in the dairy herd, and the cost of farm incomes, you say, or KPMG have told you, uh, will be estimated at potentially 21% for beef farmers and 15% for dairy farmers. Is there the possibility, though, that the farmers will get all the grants for the solar panels and anything else that is going and won't have to take any of this pain? Because we're told uh, that uh, it's going to be a 25% reduction on one hand, but on the other hand, we're told it's voluntary if you decide to do it. No, no, it'll be voluntary. It's not voluntary for the sector. Farmers must, and, and we, we'll have to hit our targets. And there are, we're the easiest to penalise. Um, it'll be very hard to penalise the building sector for missing a target because, let's face it, we heard yesterday that the taxpayer is going to foot the bill for over two billion of repairs to be done to badly built um, apartments during the mm. boom years and the builders get away. You know, there's going to be a levy, but that's on current builders. Uh, a lot of them are selling themselves uh, in the more exotic parts of the world at the moment, uh, having made off with the cash when the country fell asunder. Just, that, just, just, just explain that to me, Pat. Does that mean that, let's say, to make it easy to understand, yes. you have a, a, a beef farmer with 100 cows, mm-hmm. and if he doesn't cut that back to 87, he's going to get fined? <clears throat> no, what, what that means is that uh, all farmers are dependent on the support systems in the EU because food... Um, the, the, the EU model is that we produce food cheaply with the taxpayer support and then the taxpayer gets food which is effectively subsidised through the production system. So it does, the, the cost of food is not covered um, by the price that farmers get and the ba- balance is made by the supports. That's been the model of European farming. This is the 60th mm. anniversary this week of the cap and that was the model to ensure a Europe that had known hunger mm. in the 40s and 50s. But will the supports be cut? Again. But what will happen is and don't be of any doubt about yeah. this, because I'm of no doubt, uh, I'm a farmer myself, yeah. if farmers fail to meet their collective target, <clears throat> um, we're going to see those payments used um, uh, as to punishment be farmers. That, so that so you'll be, be punished if you don't go from 100 to 87, that 13% well, no, reduction? No, not the individuals. I think collective mm. farmers, because it's collective responsibility. But how it will work is that it, when, it, when the government said it's voluntary, there will be voluntary mm. uh, incentivization for individual farmers to make their own decisions what to do and there will be confidence that within the sector enough farmers will take advantage of those voluntary schemes to bring the numbers down by the required amount. For instance, mm. um, if <clears throat> the, uh, the average farmer in Ireland is 60, one in four has no identified successor and um, the, if you're in your late 60s and you're dairy farming or you're suckler farming and uh, you want, because it's about cow reduction, <clears throat> um, uh, you have to be either dairy or sucker farming, and you may take advantage of a voluntary cessation scheme where you're paid to take cows off your land and to keep cows off your land, um, and you're paid quite well, and that that might attract enough farmers. So that's the kind of scheme. In On the front page this week, we carried a story by Jack Kennedy from a group called the Food Vision 2030 Dairy mm. Group. So that's the current plan that's being put in place for farming um, for the rest of the decade. And um, 
the the stakeholders are talking about a proposal where farmers would be paid quite handsomely to cull their cows and keep cows off their land for the duration. Right, okay. So um, mm-hmm. that's the kind of scheme that would be in place. But having said that, that's the big transformative on-farm measure. But there's an awful lot of things that all farmers will have to do. For instance, low emission slurry spreading. <clears throat> this is where the old splash plate that threw the, the slurry up in the air and meant you had to get the clothes in off the line, you you appreciated a phone call from your your neighbouring farmer. (laughs) Absolutely, you're having a barbecue, yeah. Yeah, and Mm -hmm. close the windows Mm -hmm. before you head for Mm -hmm. work. So um, that's that's going to be a thing of the past. Mm -hmm. Uh, An awful lot of farmers have been required uh, for the last years to use low emission slurry spreading, where the slurry is injected into the ground, and um, uh, that means that less of the... Uh, nutrients are going into the atmosphere and being lost. It's, it's more efficient in terms of nutrient use. Okay. And with the price of fertiliser now since the war in Russia, that's a good thing, but it's also better for the environment. Mm. So all farmers, I think, are, are going to have to do that. <clears throat> it's a more expensive way of application, but mm. there are benefits okay. uh, for the farmer, economic benefits as well as environmental benefits. Pat- You're going to see that. Um, and that's one of about 15 measures which have been identified in what's known as the marginal abatement curve that all farmers will have to sign up to um, and uh, it will become normal practice. Okay, listen Pat, I've run over time. I have to leave it there and thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. Pat O'Toole, political correspondent with the Irish Farmers Journal. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, a local district court judge makes uh, the news this week that it is rather than a decision being made by this judge making the news because the Mead Chronicle is reporting that at a sitting of the district court in Trim last week, Judge Miriam Walsh admonished people in two separate cases about the way that they were dressed when they appeared to defend their cases. Let's uh, speak uh, to journalist Paul Murphy, who has this story in the Chronicle this week. He's on the line. A very good morning to you, Paul, uh, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, on the programme. Tell us a, a little bit about what happened in court, if you would, please. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax. And think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Well, Michael, of course, we know last week it was pretty steamy in court. 
uh, temperatures went up to 28, 30 degrees. And uh, while Trim Courthouse is a fine building, um, some of the rooms don't have air conditioning. And uh, although they have high ceilings, um, we, we normally get uh, the advantage maybe of, a, of a, a large fan in the corner of the room. And, of course, all that does is, is, is circulate the, uh, uh, the warm air around the room. Mm. But, however, uh, having said that, um, some people come into court you know, well prepared for the warm, for the warm weather. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and in, yeah. In, in, you, you, in, you often hear of people saying to fellas, uh, are you going to court uh, because they have a suit on or a shirt and tie on? Uh, but I, I take yeah. it that wasn't the case in Trim last week in either of these cases. Oh, certainly not. <laughs> uh, in, in, the, in the first case, this young lady, she's about, she's about 20, I'd reckon, mm. and uh, she came into court wearing what it could be described, that you and I might, might not know much about these, but uh, this is a tube top. And, uh, of course, it, it showed her bare midriff and the whole lot. And, and then she was, she was also wearing shorts and, and runners. Right. So uh, Judge Miriam Walsh was on the bench. And, uh, you know, she told her that her dress wear might be all right for the beach, but certainly not for a courtroom. Oh, okay. So, mm. she, so she, she went off with a bee at her ear, I suppose. Mm. And then uh, later on, then, the, a young man came into the court. Uh, I'd reckon he was about, about 30 and he was wearing a, a lilac-coloured T-shirt, uh, old and neil-coloured shorts, and, and runners. What shorts? Uh, uh, old and neil-coloured shorts. <laughs> now, they, they, commonly, they, might, they might commonly be known as, you know, sea green. Right. But, uh, but then my, my late mother's uh, favourite colour was old and neil. Mm. And, of course, that transfers... That translates to water of the Nile. Uh-huh. How, uh, you couldn't get any more exotic than that. Oh, Daniil. Yes. Right, okay. And Judge Miriam Walsh wasn't happen, ha- happy with the old Daniil shorts either. No, no. She said that that, that that might be all right, she said, for the, for the Costa, del, Costa del Sol, but mm. not for the courtroom. And then she told him that the next day you're appearing in court, he was remanded, he was remanded to another date. She told him to wear appropriate dress on the next day. Okay, right. And, and when he protested, it was very warm. She told him that everybody else had to dress properly, including the Garvey and solicitors. Right. Well, what's appropriate? There are guidelines, are there? Well, the court service advice on this is a little ambiguous. But there's, they say on one hand, there's no specific dress code. However, normally people dress formally, you know, as you would going for a job interview. Mm. And then... You do not have to wear a suit or tie. Just aim to be neat and tidy. Hot clothes are not allowed. And the court service says, nothing too sexy or too dressy. Tight tops, short skirts, sequins, stinky tops, and revealing tops. I'm assuming that's only for the men. Okay. (coughs) And don't wear anything you would wear on a Saturday night, uh, like a sundress or strapless dress. Nice. That's very old-fashioned and fuddy-duddy, is it? It doesn't say O'Donnell is out, does it? <laughs> no, no, I don't. I don't okay. think they're they're, they're, they're they're clued in totally on the on the on the on the, on the colour standards. Okay, right. Well, I, I, I'm not too familiar with courts. I'm glad to say, uh, but uh, I, I take it that they're very formal settings, uh, not just here but uh, across the world. Uh, and you've been looking at problems that. 
have uh, arisen because of how people have turned up in court in the way they were dressed. And there's a case being taken in India, I think. Yes, uh, there was a de- this debate over the dress, dress in court has gone on for years. And in June this year, Chidanand Rajgata, the Times of India foreign editor in the U.S., took an Indian high court judge to task over his remarks about wearing workaday casual attire in court. Uh, the officials in the court were wearing a kind of a regular shirt and slacks. Hmm. And the judge said he wanted them to have dressed in a formal jacket with closed collar. Right. So no open neck shirts or, or, or blouses in court in mm. India. Of course, I was in, I was in a, a courtroom in India um, some years ago in the 1970s, mm. and uh, they're pretty steamy places, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they're, they're full of fans, but then the fans drive around this, this heat, 40 40 degree heat. Yeah, you're wondering if it makes it worse. Uh, can, I can imagine. Uh, I think we've all seen something like that uh, on the television. Uh, but if this seems old-fashioned now, uh, it, it certainly uh, was a problem in the past. Uh, and you have a, a story uh, that you've been looking at that goes back to 1938. Yes. That's, this is in Los Angeles. And a woman went to jail for wearing slacks in court. Helen Hulick is her name. She made history and struck a blow for women's fashion. Uh, She was giving evidence against two burglary suspects. But the judge cut her off in in mid-testimony and ordered her to wear a a dress at the next hearing. She was quoted in the LA Times as saying, You tell the judge I will stand on my rights. If he orders me to change uh, into a dress, I won't do it. Mm. I like slacks. They're comfortable. Mm. She went back to court five days later in slacks and the judge got madder still. Mm. He refused to let her testify while dressed in a green and orange leisure attire. Uh, He told her that she drew more attention from spectators, prisoners and court officials than the legal business at hand. Mm. And she was held in contempt and jailed for five days. So basically she went to jail for wearing trousers. Uh, And... Uh, there's an issue with skirts uh, I think you outlined today with the Irish Courts Service uh, you said that short skirts shouldn't be worn Uh, and you have another story that you want to relate to us uh, this morning which is called the mini skirt affair Yes, this is the mini skirt affair in February 1969 and I'm I'm taking this from a a community legal service one of their lawyers named Caroline Peck in Syracuse, uh, New York, was barred by a city court judge. And he's, uh, he's aged 75 and she's 27. She was barred by a city court judge for wearing a tie-high skirt in court. And uh, she appeared in front of Judge Parker Stone. And she appealed this decision twice. And she lost twice. She contended that Judge Stone's order was a violation of her freedom of of, uh, association and right of expression. The miniskirt is an important mode of protected expression, she said. She described her her attire as a one-piece dress, grey and white, that I guess is about five inches above my knee. She said she wasn't admitted to the New York... She said she was admitted to the New York bar in the same mode of wear she was wearing in the case in court. The judge said that her attire was an unusual, immodest, and exaggerated mode of dress 
which was a conspicuous departure from accepted courtroom custom in Syracuse, New York, that could result in the distraction of others and disrupt and impede the maintenance of proper courtroom atmosphere and decorum. And the judge must have distracted himself because he judged the skirt to be well above five inches of the knee. <laughs> no, come on. <laughs> oh, I don't know. That is that that is really bizarre stuff, uh, and uh, I, I think peculiar to think that there is a, enough time in a lifetime to spend as much time as you've uh, spoken to us uh, about uh, clothing in courtrooms. Uh, but that seems to be the reality of the situation. Uh, thank you indeed uh, for joining us. I'm told you're uh, speaking to us uh, wearing your favourite O'Donnell's shorts uh, this morning, uh, but <laughs> we, we leave that to people people's imagination, Paul. And oh, thanks please, please for do. That. Leave it to the imagination. Thanks, Michael. Thank you indeed. Paul Murphy, reporter with The Mead Chronicle. Michael Reed on LMFM. Those who say on the environmental side, and I absolutely understand why, that this is not enough. There can never be enough. The scale of the challenge is so great that we do have to go to the max, do the absolute everything, because it's such a critical time. There's so little time left. But in this, we will start and make a really good, strong start. And as we learn by doing, we could speed up. But we have to start now, working together. We won't do it if it's divisive, as I said. For those who say it's too much, maybe on the agricultural side, I'd say one thing more than anything else. The, we need the environmental movement and the agricultural movement to come together. And we are coming together. That's the Minister for the Environment, Damon Ryan, speaking at uh, that government press briefing yesterday evening. Uh, let's speak uh, to Jerry McAvilly, who's head of policy change with Friends of the Earth. Good morning to you, Jerry, and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, would you count yourself amongst those who say it isn't enough? We would, we would. Uh, Look, I think in one sense, this uh, issue, this discussion and the negotiation between ministers has really dragged on. So it was important that they reached an agreement, you know, as as soon as possible and not let this drag over the summer. But in terms of the specific targets that were agreed, there are issues with them. There are problems. And really, most importantly, the, the key issue is that Every sector now, now that these targets are in place, needs to be supported to take action immediately. There really needs to be a really ruthless focus from government on climate action across every part of society. Okay, uh, did Eamon Ryan save his political skin uh, at the cost of forgetting to save the planet? I, I don't think we'd go that far. I mean, I think the government... He bottled it on agriculture, though, didn't he? I, well, look, I think on specifically on the agriculture targets, the, the 25% that was agreed is low, lower than what is needed, and it will put pressure on other parts of society, on motorists, on householders, and on you know the, the energy sector, because you have one sector doing less, which means in order to fulfil our overall commitments, it's just pure maths that other sectors will have to do more. 
for it. Yeah, well, the maths um, doesn't even add up. Uh, this is a, another failing on the part of the Green Party, is it not, in that uh, it's Eamon Ryan's party that said it, it would bring a, a, about reductions in emissions to help uh, with the battle against climate change. Electricity, for example, uh, they'd hoped that it would uh, be a 62% cut, between 62 and 81, but that's now at 75%. Uh, and you could go through the different sectors like that and everything is sort of uh, come up at the higher end, bar agriculture. Uh, uh, and uh, when you add it all up, uh, it appears to fall short at 47% instead of 51%. You're dead right, and I'm very happy you raised that. So I think, and I appreciate this is very like abstract for your listeners. It almost sounds like, you know, <laughs> leaving certain maths. But the key issue is that we, under the climate law, we have to reduce our emissions by 51% by 2030. This was uh, cut up or divided into what's called carbon budgets. So how much um, polluting emissions the country is allowed to emit over five-year periods. And then we go another level down and say, all right, so we have these type of car- uh, emissions budgets or carbon budgets. How much do, must each sector reduce its emissions in order to align with those budgets and as as you have just said the maths isn't there so it doesn't add up so Friends of the Earth is calling for or is does feel that the midterm review that was also noted by government yesterday is now absolutely crucial in order to make sure that um, certain of those targets are increased in the coming years because otherwise it simply won't be possible to meet our overall targets. Yeah, well, um, how are they going to get it from 47 to 51 uh, if, uh, I mean, it should be at 51 now and that's not even taken into account land usage. Uh, it, it seems as though they've fallen at the first hurdle. Well, I think, look, I, I on the one hand, the fact that it doesn't add up is a major issue. They, there's what they've, they've noted unallocated savings is the term used, which is a bit of a, a very abstract term, but essentially that in the future they're hoping that as measures are yeah. implemented to reduce emissions and as more technologies are rolled out, that more emissions reductions will come on the cards. But I think it's really crucial, if you, I think, for your listeners to understand that neither Friends of the Earth nor anyone else wants to get entirely lost in the maths. The the reason Mm. we're talking about these figures is because previously, going back a few years, there was no accountability or governance or monitoring structure to make sure each of these sectors reduced their emissions. That now is somewhat in place, but it's problematic, as you've just said. But it still doesn't remove the absolute necessity for emissions to start falling right now. And the reason they need to fall is because, as we've seen with the really high temperatures during the summer, the climate crisis is only getting worse. So the the sooner we can start reducing emissions, the better. And that means action by government across Mm. every sector. Yeah, but what does that mean? Does that mean that uh, our electricity bills are going to soar even higher because of an increase in carbon tax as an incentive for us to use less electricity or the same with the petrol pumps or or, or whatever else it is that we do in our daily lives. Is it that people outside of agriculture are going to have to pay for this compromise or or this cop-out, as the case may be, uh, to agriculture? Well, I think there's two, two parts to this. I think on the agriculture side, Friends of the Earth wants farmers to to be supported to uh, 
action uh, and have other uses for their land and uh, be able to develop their land in more climate and environmentally friendly ways and to be supported to do to do that and that, so that there's not simply a relentless incentive and stress on ever-increasing cow numbers. That's number one. But number two, on the issue of cost, so uh, first of all, there is a cost to doing nothing. As we've seen with the, uh, with the climate crisis, the status quo isn't acceptable. The, the climate impacts are only going to get worse. But crucially, I think in order to actually reduce energy bills, we need to get off fossil fuels as soon as possible. We've seen with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and the pressures that put, has put on energy markets, that's largely a gas-driven crisis. That's a fossil fuel. The more Ireland can do and the more government to, can do to support the most vulnerable, to not be so reliant on fossil fuels, mm. the cheaper it'll be for everyone. Yeah, well, we know we're going to have to pay more for fossil fuels, but we have to pay all the more again because uh, there's been uh, this concession to agriculture. Well, I think the concern. I, it, uh, I think the concern. It's kind of a rhetorical question. I mean, the the the, the likelihood the is likelihood. yes, isn't it? Well, I think the issue is that other sectors. It's simply that if the agriculture sector doesn't reduce its emissions enough, it means that other parts of society will have to take more action. That's the simple mm. maths. If they can, and they may not be able to, which makes it unrealistic in a situation where we're not already reaching the target of 51%. Yeah, yeah. I know, look, I agree with you that it is a fundamental major risk. I think the issue here is that on the one hand, Friends of the Earth wants farmers to be supported in a fair manner through this transition, but it has to be done in a fair way, which takes account of the fact that the rest of society and other businesses and other sectors, they are equally being asked to do, or even more, I should say, uh, have even more ambitious commitments put on the likes of energy and housing to to decarbonise those sectors. So, there's a, there, I agree with you in the sense that there is an issue of fairness here, but equally, farmers do need to be supported through the transition. And I would say that the, now is an absolute priority that we move beyond this type of division between farmers on the one side and environmentalists on the other. We, it's in all of our interests that climate action is prioritised and takes place and is supported as mm. soon as possible. Okay. Do you think uh, that between the three government parties uh, that the uh, announcement uh, for all sectors uh, that was made yesterday, do you think that they got the balance right? Well, I think as, as we've just been talking about, the given that it doesn't add up in the correct yeah. manner to our overall target, I think we can't say that the balance is right. But we we do have a concern that the lower that that the that the targets that were set for each of the sectors being lower than they should be, um, particularly for agriculture, is problematic. You know, and really. Agriculture is our, our biggest emitting sector, and mm. that is a real risk where you don't have sufficient, what's the word, sufficient obligations on that sector. The, yeah. the concern is that those emissions are just going to continue to increase. It sounds very diplomatic and, and, and pragmatic. Uh, I, I'm hearing, uh, on one hand, uh, concern from friends of uh, the earth, but I'm not hearing very strong criticism on, uh, on the other hand. Is that a, a reluctance to be critical of a Green Party minister? 
No, I think it's. I think we'd be very comfortable being, being critical, and it's not only the Green Party; it's a whole of government commitment. I think the issue is you are absolutely right that the that what has been set is not sufficient. The, the targets, I should say, are not sufficient. But on the other, Friends of the Earth does not want us to to have a type of endless negotiation and back and forth on these targets mm. there is I, I should say some need for some balance that like what is what is going to happen next or your listen this might be all very abstract for your yeah. listeners mm-hmm. but there's going to be another climate action plan where each of the government departments will s- set out in light of these commitments all the investments and policies policies and strategies and supports and incentives that will flow from this and we also have a budget coming up at the end of september as well so, like, I think there is a real need for, for both this new climate action plan and the budget, you know, as soon as possible to drive real action. OK, we leave it there for the moment. Uh, thank you indeed, uh, Jerry, for joining us on the programme. Much appreciated. Uh, Jerry McAvilly is uh, head of policy change with Friends of the Earth. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, Alcohol Action Ireland have made a pre-budget uh, submission. Let's speak uh, to Una McKinney, Head of uh, Communications with Alcohol Action. And you're hoping that the government uh, will use uh, the budget as an opportunity to curb the consumption of alcohol uh, by making it more expensive for people, is it? Morning, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Um, well, what we've, we've been consistently arguing with government, I think, over the last couple of years uh, around the the need, I mean, there's a big push by the industry, the alcohol industry, to have excise duties reduced. And, and so what we're arguing in our submission is that, at the very least, that the ministers would retain the existing levels and duties, mm. um, but also uh, would put in place a, a CPI index on alcohol excise rates uh, so that they can continue to retain some sense of real value. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, just for your listeners' sake, you know, the last time there was a an excise rate increase in Ireland was in 2013. That's nearly a decade ago now. And obviously in that time and since that time, inflation has run at around 14%. So those rates are diminishing in value and so when they diminish obviously the affordability of alcohol increases so well, what we're arguing is that you know, I, I think want, it's over 12 percent over yeah. over 12 percent in that time frame and most of that in the last year but uh, you're looking for excise uh, to be increased by 10 percent and you're also asking for the introduction of levies yeah, and again, we've asked for this before, and this is really down to a more fundamental problem and probably a longer discussion. But, you know, we in our everyday work look at the, the level of treatment services available to people, and there is a chronic need for additional treatment places for, you know, for people to begin that long journey and hard journey into recovery. Services have to be available for people timely because you have to capture people when they make that decision. And last year in Ireland, only just over 3,000 people got those services. Whereas we know from our work that on on average, that figure is likely to be nearer to 9,000, the demand for those services. So what we're arguing for is levy, a small levy to be placed on alcohol sales, which would fund uh, a very modest injection of, of, of funding into treatment services. For about 35 million, you could solve this problem. Mm. Now, 35 million 
you know, is not a huge amount of money when one considers that the state is collecting 1.2 billion uh, in excise duties on, a, on an annual basis. Right, uh, but it's the most expensive country in Europe already for alcohol. Yeah, well, again, we, I, you know, Ireland is an expensive place, and again, we outline in our in our budget submission that in the context, even if one looks at other products, um, so non-alcoholic beverages, for example, your your classic minerals, etc., we're we're the leading country in Europe in relation to the cost of those particular products. Yeah. But if you, even if you go down the line, you know, food is the second most expensive. I think uh, bread is the third most expensive. Um, eggs are the fourth most yeah, expensive. Yeah, so yeah, like yeah. It, we're an expensive country. Yeah, and that's a, country, a, it's, a it's a valid argument. Uh, but uh, I think relative uh, to income, it, it continues to be an expensive place to buy alcohol. Well, well, no, because the affordability again we outlined in our in our in our pre-budget submission, you know, the data from the OECD, which mm. would demonstrate that the affordability of alcohol over the last couple of decades in Ireland has actually increased. So, mm. you know, for for one euro, we'll say typically you might buy one drink in a, in an off trade. Twenty years ago, you'd have got one. Today, you'll get two for that price. You know, or you know, for the for the amount of value that well, you spend, the uh, money you will spend. That's forgetting so about the affordability the, of alcohol mm. is actually increased. But uh, that's forgetting about hand. minimum unit pricing, of course. Uh, and uh, I'm sure well, you're at that cheaper level, of course. Yeah, yeah but I, I'm that's sure. Whole point. I, I'm sure you're aware of uh, the study uh, of uh, that. Uh, scheme in Scotland, published in the British Medical Journal, uh, which really shows that it has no impact on heavy drinkers. Well, that's not actually quite true. I mean, if you look at the... Well, it says that the 5% of heaviest drinkers increased what they were drinking after the introduction. No, what it said was that the the reduction uh, in Scotland was 6.2%, but that at the 5% heaviest, the heaviest drink, the 5% heaviest drinkers of men, it did not impact. But it was only the women, it was only, but it was only women who didn't drink, it was only women who didn't drink very much to begin with that drank less. People who drank a a lot drank more. But the universal figure, again, within the context of Scotland, is that there has been a reduction of 6.2%. And again, if you come back to Ireland, what is the point of MUP? The point of MUP is to bring about a, around an 8% reduction overall in alcohol use. And obviously, we're only six months into that project, so we're going to have to wait mm. and see what that reports back at. But in the context of this pre-budget submission, if we continued to enhance the affordability of alcohol, especially for those people who have some degree of disposable income, well, we can, we're going to see a stalling in relation to what has been some real progress over the last three or four years whereby we've seen a consistent reduction in alcohol use across the whole population. Okay, and do you think that people are happy with the introduction of minimum unit pricing uh, that they see that it's nearly twice as dear to buy a can of beer as it used to be in some circumstances, but they think, well, that's for the greater good. Yeah, I think, wait a minute, if we did some polling on this back when it was been introduced and, you know, about two-thirds of the population were were happy and comfortable with the introduction of minimum unit price and they saw the value of it in the context of bringing about that reduction that I outlined. Um, and so I would think that that's probably the same today, that it's, you know, I'd say two-thirds of people think that minimum unit pricing was, was a good idea in the context of trying to improve public health uh, outcomes across the population where we simply drink too much too often. And so, yeah, I, I've no doubt that a third of the population probably don't think it's a great idea. Mm. Um, but 
you know, the, the, the proof will be in the, in the pudding, I suppose, in that sense. And, of course, it is only one measure across a, what is a whole series, a series of measures that have taken place over the last three, two or three years within the context of the Public Health Alcohol Act. And, and, and the overall aim of that is to bring about a 20% reduction of alcohol use across the population. And that would have real impact. You know, as I say, we know that there are... 90,000 people at minimum who have a really severe problem with alcohol but there's a much bigger problem of people who are on a slippery slope and that is Mm. the the over 300,000 people who would have a mild alcohol use disorder and they're people who just simply drink too much too often Uh, and so you know, if we want to do, if we want to seriously tackle this problem that is costing us an absolute fortune as we outlined in the pre-budget submission you know Let's bring it, just simply bring it in. Never mind the human impact of it. We can talk about that separately. Okay. But at an economic level, this is, this is costing us an absolute yeah, fortune. Of course, you're talking to people along the border here, and I was going to mention the border, but I let our listeners do it. Uh, Paddy Duffy uh, texting saying, first and last store in Jonesborough, and I think you know what that means. Tony says. <laughs> Tony asks, do you know uh, that the minimum pricing fiasco is already pushing people across the border? Uh, and he says, you want to finish it off altogether with yet another increase. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I understand what people, what the what the, the commentary would be. But again, I mean, the, there will be some information or there will be some data collected from the household budget later this year. And we'll, we'll get a sense of what is that picture looking like in relation to the cross-border. Is that actually the case? And, and you and I have discussed that mm-hmm. in the past and I, I actually think we will find that it hasn't done a huge amount of uh, additional uh, push in relation to trade. Yes, there are people going across the border to buy alcohol, but those people always did that. And that's okay. my point. The point is, is it additionally pushing further people across the border? And I suspect it isn't. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thanks as always, Thanks. Unan. Bye. Thank you indeed. Unan McKinney, Head of uh, uh, Communications with Alcohol Action Ireland. Now, thanks to, to Carmel, who's been on the phone to us uh, this morning. And Carmel wants to know if uh, the numbers announced by the government yesterday are actually achievable, or is uh, this all the usual pie-in-the-sky stuff from the coalition? We're not exactly well known for hitting targets, uh, especially environmental targets, as it is. So what makes anyone think think, or the government think for that matter, that they'll do it this time around. I'd have to say I'd be as cynical as Carmel. Uh, Davey says he commends local politicians and the people of Navin for repeatedly talking about how they will fight to save Navin Hospital. He admires their determination, he says, but he also believes you need to wise up. Uh, and it's about time you realised this is a, a losing battle that you're fighting. Uh, Davy says the decision has already been made about the future of uh, the hospital and no matter what you do or no matter how many promises uh, there are uh, about fighting that decision, you're not going to change it. Thank you, Davy, uh, for your call to the programme as well today. Michael Michael Reed Reed on on LMFM. It really is uh, the last big long weekend of uh, the summer and many people will be heading far afield and the roads will be very busy as uh, people make their way uh, across uh, the country for the long weekend. Uh, And indeed, the hope is that you arrive uh, alive uh, this Sunday. A special mass 
will be said on the summit of Crowpatrick for the protection of all road users. Let's speak to the Bishop of Killaloo, Fintan Monaghan. And a very good morning to you, Bishop, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. I know that you're asking all parishes to pray for people who've lost their lives on Irish roads over the years, but you're also asking people this weekend to listen to the advice of the professionals, the Road Safety Authority and the Gardaí. Sure, and, and thanks for the opportunity to, to, to speak uh, to you and to your listeners, Michael. It, it's something that I do on a regular basis uh, as I have the responsibility for it in the Episcopal Conference. And it's it, uh, traditionally uh, on bank holiday weekends, I issue a similar appeal because tr- uh, um, statistically bank holiday weekends are more dangerous on the road. And it follows a very concerted effort by the, the Minister for Transport and the Road Safety Authority and the Gardaí who have issued a, a, a very strong appeal in advance of the bank holiday weekend for people to be careful on, on, on the roads. And uh, the effort that, that uh, we, we have is, is that uh, so many people will be going to Croke Patrick because it's week Sunday on Sunday and I happen to be saying the Mass at 10 o'clock on, on the summit of Skoelge and um, they, that Mass will be offered for the safety of people on the road. And I suppose it's an effort to alert people uh, and to be more conscious uh, in whatever way they can, whether it's slowing down or whether it's uh, not using their mobile phone or uh, not drink driving or drug driving or whatever it is, or just basically to be more courteous uh, on the road. Mm. And all of those small things, I suppose, help to contribute to, to safety. Because like, if you look at it this the, the statistics already for this year are absolutely horrific. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 2% increase in the number of fatalities uh, and already there have been 94 deaths, which is so sad. Yeah. And 673 people have been seriously injured already in, in 2022. And um, in, in, in my job, uh, you know, with so many funerals and tragedies of, uh, and you're dealing firsthand and no more than the Gardaí would be or the professionals in that area. Mm. It's so tragic and sad when you do come across uh, fatalities or serious accidents. And it's only when the reality of that hits that you become so conscious and so aware of of the seriousness of of that situation. And uh, and I suppose as a a pastor, um, uh, you know firsthand uh, the reality of somebody losing their life. Uh, Somebody's life is extinguished, but it's the people who are are left behind after them, uh, mourning them uh, uh, and wondering uh, why they aren't there, because quite often those deaths are unnecessary. But there's also then... Uh, the terrible injuries that we don't hear about. You quite often hear about a, a road traffic incident uh, and uh, that's the end of it. But the life-changing uh, experience that that can be for people who are left paraplegic or otherwise. Absolutely. And when you look at the figures of uh, what you hear of are the fatalities in 94 to date, but 673 serious injuries and, and as you said, the knock-on effects of, of that and even it, it's very interesting when it's when it's when it's broken down in terms of uh, motorcyclists and pedestrians and passengers and uh, cyclists and e-scooters and uh, the specific numbers that are associated with that, along with dri- driving and um, 
Mm. You know, so I suppose uh, the, the overall message is that anything that can be done to increase the awareness of the importance of, of safety. Mm. And, mm. and this weekend, there'll be so much movement around mm. between Reek Sunday and the various festivals and the concerts that are on and Flakion and Heron and Mullingar and the various games and people going on holidays be a huge amount of movement around mm. and uh, well this is it you have to remember when you're out on the roads you're not you're not the only person who's going to the fla or going to crow patrick for mass or or, or uh, down to the ring of Kerry uh, on your holidays everybody's out in the roads and it's going to be a slower experience so there's no point in getting frustrated or, or trying to overtake to make the journey quicker because it's really just futile isn't it Sure, absolutely, and 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 I think statistics will show that uh, by breaking the speed limit, you you won't necessarily get to your destination quicker. And uh, as you say, just to be patient and to avoid getting frustrated and uh, road rage is what contributes to an, an awful lot of of that. And even, I suppose, the whole thing of going too slow on the road is, is another issue as well. And that yeah. co- often causes uh, frustration. And, uh, you know, to, to drive at a reasonable pace and a reasonable speed no. uh, and, and to be as courteous as possible. Well, that's it. If you're inconsiderate in one way or another, whether it's too fast or too slow or farm machinery not moving over to let people get by or bicycles <laughs> riding four abreast or, or anything like that can cause all sorts of problems and you'd ask people to be responsible and think of other people and share the roads uh, uh, w- with everybody else. Uh, the reality of the situation is that we've done brilliantly over the years. Uh, if you go back uh, to the 70s, uh, when there were far fewer on the cars on the road uh, and uh, they were not the kind of machines that they are today uh, and the roads were dreadful and all of that. Uh, we were looking at five, six hundred deaths on an annual basis. We brought that down dramatically. But recently, uh, as you say, we've seen an increase in deaths. Uh, and is, is that because um, we're just coming back to life after lockdown and or, or is it that uh, we're losing... Uh, the consciousness uh, uh, and uh, the awareness of being safe on the roads. Yeah, well, that is so true. You know, during the couple of years of lockdown, there was so much less travel and the, the numbers did go go way down. But I think, as you say, partly because the roads have improved and the facilities are so much better, but also the very strong influence of the Road Safety Authority that issued these appeals and on a very regular basis. And I see Minister Nocton has, has in, increased the penalties that are associated and the fines that are associated with either carrying a mobile phone or, uh, or, or speeding. Uh, and the penalty points are always an issue there. All of those things, I suppose, are a deterrent, but I think more positively to approach it from the point of view of, of courteousness and awareness and to be careful and to have that on, on mind. And I suppose the angle that I'm coming at is, is a, a prayer angle. And what I'd normally do on the bank holiday weekends is have a, a ritual ceremonial blessing of the roads. Again, just the, the visual impact of that and people see that happening often bless their car or say a prayer in the car. All of those things mm. increase increase your spiritual awareness of, of, of that uh, important issue. Okay. So anything that can contribute to, to more safety and uh, and people being 
uh, looked after better on the road. Okay, uh, well, I, I suppose to put it, it simply, uh, and I don't mean this uh, in an irreverent way or to be frivolous in any way, um, but you'll be uh, saying Mass uh, on the summit of Crow Patrick, as you said, Os Gaelic uh, this week, Sunday, and you'll be praying for the lives uh, of people who've lost uh, their lives uh, on the roads. Uh, and let's hope that nobody listening to us uh, this morning uh, will be prayed for next year. Uh, but we leave it there for the moment and thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. That's the Bishop of Killaloo, Finton Monaghan, and that's our programme for today. I hope you have a, a lovely, safe, long weekend and God willing we'll see you for our next programme on Tuesday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 087 660 4237. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.